Welcome to UUCSW Reflections, a podcast by the Unitarian Universalist Congregational Society of Westboro, Massachusetts. We're glad you're here. Welcome to UUCSW Reflections. I'm your host, Amanda Hall, here with Reverend Laurel Gray. This is the monthly episode of this podcast where we reflect on recent sermon themes and answer questions from the congregation. If you'd like to submit a question, please email it to podcasts at uucsw.org. Don't worry, we won't share the names or identifying information about question askers on this podcast. September's theme was renewal, and in this episode, we'll be discussing the sermons Streams of Renewal and Renewal at Home both of which can be found in this podcast feed. Welcome back. Hello. We're back at it. Apparently it's almost Yay. October. <laughs> I know. Um, Hello. I mean, we took a couple months off, but I it know. feels like... It, we're already here. It's good to be here. I know. In the same place talking to you again. <laughs> yes. Well, I am actually in a very different place than where I talked to you last. Yes, you've moved. I have moved. I'm in Philadelphia now. Um, For people who don't know, I just started a master's program in social policy and data analytics. So I moved here to live right next to campus so that I can go to all of my classes virtually anyway. (laughs) So you're in Philadelphia because you're going to UPenn, which is very exciting. That's correct. I am. I I can brag for you. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Well, we can definitely um, unpack a little bit about how institutions uh, legitimize knowledge a little bit later. But um, yep, you know, yep. As a fellow, as a fellow grad school Ivy leaguer, and all the ways that's complicated. Yes. So I will simultaneously be proud of myself for my achievements and criticize the infrastructure that makes them possible. Good. Good. Good job. Ready, go. (laughs) (laughs) Go team. (laughs) All right. So I am really excited that we're back into a regular church here. Um, Me too. But of course, like, regular is relative. So Uh I, are you ready for the first question of the year? I am ready. All right. What is different about the beginning of this year compared to the beginning of last year? That's a good question and is sort of a wild thing to think about. Um, I was thinking about that when I was writing the Streams of Renewal sermon, because a year ago I was writing the sermon that was like, hi, I'm your new minister, (laughs) Um, which is a very different vibe from this year where we're coming into our second year, but starting it still in quarantine and looking at likely doing the whole church year digitally. Um, That was certainly the recommendation from the Unitarian Universalist Association. And so starting a new ministry last year, which was like lots of socializing and like, you know, sort of cocktail parties to like meet all the congregants and like trying to learn everybody's names was very different than this year when we're trying to make sure all of our digital systems are more seamless so that we're we're not sort of doing the like hold on to your lifeboat factor that we were in in the spring when we mm-hmm. when we in a two week span of time had to pivot from doing everything in person to suddenly 
doing everything remotely. So that's been, it's been a task. And I, and I'm so thankful that we have a really good staff team. Um, our administrator is like a superwoman, and I'm ever grateful for her. So that's sort of like a behind the scenes, just the complexity of getting things started. And then I'm also trying to think a little bit more deeply now that we like I am in my second year with with our congregation about how we need to be in community together and what people really need right now, because we're obviously in this like incredibly tumultuous, chaotic moment on so many levels from a pandemic to all of these natural disasters to all the racial injustice that's that's finally becoming more visible generally um, instead of sort of being a thing that has been, I don't know, more invisible to at least to white people. And then add on top of that the political climate. And it's just like a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things that that is new is we we did a couple surveys in the spring and people said that they really valued Sunday morning services. That was what made them feel super connected. So we've been shifting things a little bit this fall so that different people can help lead services. And so they're a little bit more consistent week to week um, because we know for people having that kind of stability is really nourishing when there's like a lot that's unsettling to say the least. Yep. Um, and then another thing that people requested was more small group time again because like this is a time that can feel really lonely or like maybe you're really only seeing one person all the time and so i and the membership committee went through and and created pods out of the congregation so we broke everybody into 10 different groups and the idea is that this is sort of your like like your home group for the year where these are the people that we're asking that everybody meet once a month and do this sort of deep listening spiritual practice together where it's there's a sharing prompt and then everybody can sort of reflect on it and share stories from their own lives to really connect not only with themselves but with each other. So that's a thing that that hopefully will be really good for connection not only with feeling like centered in ourselves and our own wisdom amidst all the chaos, but also feeling more deeply connected to other people. So I'm I'm hopeful it's a gigantic experiment. But I think right now, like, COVID sort of meant that all bets were off in terms of whatever we thought was normal. And so, you know, we're, we're rolling with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that people had requested in the surveys we did, sort of surprisingly to me, was more social media engagement and more ideas about how to do like justice actions. So the other thing that I started doing is a weekly Facebook post with a hashtag, which is small acts, big principles. And the idea is that each week I highlight some small action I've taken and whatever of our seven principles that action exemplifies. So like the first one was that we affirm the democratic process. And so like, I bought a bunch of stamps and (laughs) signed a petition for the right for the post office. So to think about really like, our seven principles that are our covenant can be these very like, big pie in the sky sort of like, what does that even mean in in action? And so the goal with it is to really make living those principles and living that covenant more accessible and more sort of 
granular, especially in a time when everything feels so big that despair can creep in and feeling like you can't do anything. And so I think it's a really important thing as a community to remember our agency by activating it and using it and grounding into the sense that like we're all committed to this covenant and this spiritual community together. And so let's all think about how we do this, which is why despite not being a social media millennial, amazingly, I figured a hashtag was actually like a good choice because right, the goal is like, it's a sort of usable tool Mm -hmm. to find other people doing similar things. So I encourage anybody and everybody to use it if you if you feel compelled. So those are some of the big new things this year. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you talk about that in terms of bringing the big spiritual ideas into the realm of the tangible. I think yes. it also works the opposite way. Yeah, you know connecting a lot of the way that we move through the world yeah. back into our spirituality. I like that because they're not disconnected, right? right? And this is sort of a practice in reflecting on like the, right? Like we're part of this UU community because it is somehow in line with our living and and making that connection. And you're right. Like I've been sort of surprised because now that I've been thinking about it, almost every day I have like an, oh yeah, that is... Like the fact that I do this thing is about that way of living, mm-hmm. um, which is really enlivening feeling. It also, I mean, we resilience has definitely been a topic that's come up before. I yeah. I need that firm bedrock to go back to right now to not get bowled over. Yes, yes. And that bedrock has a lot of components. UUism is one of them, and it's one that I really right. care about. So right. it helps. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned that a lot of people are hungry for social justice thinking, actions. Yeah. Um, how are you approaching that in the way you're thinking about sermons? That's a really good question. Yeah. So this is another thing that I've um, I've really been thinking about, especially as I've started to dive into the Commission on Institutional Change report that we talked about a little bit in the spring. Mm -hmm. One of the things that sticks out from what I've read and what I've heard and people talking about it is the importance of how we talk about theology, which can be sort of a scary word um, to a lot of UUs, especially people who became UU as a way of leaving something that did them spiritual harm. But so the way that I've been thinking about that is um, I'm trying to sort of move against this idea that social justice is only means a certain set of things, Mm -hmm. which looks like protest, protesting or, you know, putting up signs or, you know, those sort of things that are obviously social justice. And so one of the things that I've I've been trying to fold social justice into how I do everything. And so in worship, the manifestation of that is that we have these monthly themes that come from Soul Matters, which is like a UU resource company. So like the September theme is renewal. And when I was planning this year, I went through and I took all of these sort of positive themes that we have, and I paired them with tenants of white supremacy culture. And the goal was to create this kind of tension because one is like renewal is sort of the world we dream of, right? Like that's what we're aspiring to and that's what we're 
work is working on practicing in community. But that also means that we're working on not doing something else. And so to create this kind of tension, I paired these kind of opposites. Mm-hmm. So like September, the what I'm calling the amplify theme was renewal. And the undermine theme, the thing, the thing that we're sort of trying to move away from because we know it's damaging to people and to society, was the idea that more is always better. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know that this will always be super obvious, but it's it's something that I think about when I'm thinking about how I'm planning a service and a sermon to give me like a wider lens that's not just the visionary, what do we hope for, but sort of the grittiness of like, what is also simultaneously true in our world that we wish wasn't true. Yeah. So I'll be, I'm curious, like, again, this is an experiment. So I'll be curious to see how it shapes services. And part of what I know too from talking to other ministers and other people is that it can be really hard to talk about white supremacy as white people, especially as liberal white people often in UU congregations. And my hope is like in a way that can be sort of blinding, like you like deer in the headlights factor, which to me is sort of functionally like not always helpful. And so part of the goal with this is when we're talking about white supremacy culture and trying to move away from it, there are like actual actual specific things about that way of operating that we're trying mm-hmm. to move away from. So like moving away from perfectionism is one of them. And that's sort of, I think breaking it down makes it in the same way that like doing the small acts makes principles more digestible sort of breaking down like what are we talking about when we just like name white supremacy culture and breaking it down into these like these are sort of cultural norms or ideas embedded in this kind of cultural foundation and to try and like dig at the bedrock um so that's all a very lengthy explanation um but that's part of what what i'm thinking about as i go through this year yeah and i think a pillar of white supremacy is it's invisibility for one thing. It's exactly the fact that it permeates every aspect of civic and personal life, but also that yeah. it deceives us into thinking that our institutions are inevitable, that this is just the way yeah. things are. And, right. and they can't change. Right. And it intentionally stunts our imagination. And so yeah. I think it's so crucial to undermine that idea early so that we can yeah. start to free ourselves to think about what a world that is regenerative can look like. Yeah. And that's where I was thinking today, one of the one of the most profound things that I have learned from black activists and authors and organizers and scholars is the idea that joy is an act of resistance. Mm which can sound a little fluffy, especially if for white people to be like congratulating ourselves for joy. But I think the thing that's really powerful to remember is that joy is something that's agile and it's about connection and it's it sort of can't be contained. And despair and that sense of paralysis and the sort of tunnel vision of things can't change or the obliviousness of like, I can't even notice how things are. Um, Joy is sort of breaks that up. And so it's a powerful thing to keep us from getting stuck. 
And so I think, I think especially in the time we're in right now, I mean, I've, I hear so many people talking about feeling paralyzed and it's really important for us, especially as a religious community to engage in practices that help us maintain our agency and help us maintain some kind of hope and imagine the possibility that things could be otherwise. I agree. Another aspect of that is, I think, a a huge part of the way our institutions and systems maintain themselves is cutting you off from your joy and then trying to convince you that you need to rely on it for that. So it's like... Or you will... it will be fixed by you buying something. <laughs> right, exactly. It's, deal- yeah. it's stealing your joy and selling it back to you. And right, right. if you decouple your connection to yourself, to joy, to pleasure, to care from right. things that you buy, not because, yeah. you know, it's, I don't know. I mean, I just think that there's a lot of, like that this is a classic way that toxic relationships and codependence develops too. Like if you're isolated from other sources of joy, it nurtures dependence. And if you feel like all that's good in your life is dependent on the system, it creates this paralyzing, deep-rooted fear of criticizing it, let alone changing it. Right. And that's actually – I'm glad you raised that point because the – the second sermon I wrote, re-recording it, I I felt a little I maybe ill at ease because I wonder if it could be received as sort of a, oh, racism is so bad for white people, which is the farthest thing from, from what I want to be the focus, right? Because anti-racism yeah. work is always for communal liberation, which means specifically liberating people who are most disenfranchised and experience the most violence. And it's on white people to do that, right? Like this is this is a system that that we sort of inadvertently and intentionally for some people maintain in a power structure that that we benefit from. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's actually really powerful to also reflect on the ways that the system is simply dehumanizing and that means dehumanizing for everyone and how our religious tradition as universalists specifically rejects that and so it gives us a foundation and a lineage from which to imagine that things could be otherwise and that was that was my goal in in framing the second sermon in the way that i did because like we as white people really need to get a move on right like we we <laughs> And I think and I think we're we're sort of starting to collectively like get rattled awake. And I think justice work can feel scary to white people who are new. And I think shifting the frame so that we can understand it as a thing that is, in fact, like incredibly joyful and liberative for everyone and in line with our own spirits Mm -hmm. Um that's a that's a kind of shift that adds more joy and abundance to the work instead of this like oh shit right or like despairing mm-hmm. like it's so bad but how can we change it um so 
I don't know. It's all complicated, right? Yeah. So. I mean, one of one um, thinker who got me sort of thinking about approaching activism from a place of joy is yep. Adrienne Marie Brown, who mm-hmm. um, like she roots into black feminist tradition. The book I'm referring yep. to is called Pleasure Activism. And oh, awesome. it's um, the the tagline here is how do we make social justice the most pleasurable human experience? How can we awaken within ourselves desires that make it impossible to settle for anything less than a fulfilling life? And I think if we nurture that desire that we've been told can't be sated by the structures that be yeah. and therefore is not valid because yeah. things are just the way that they are, if we re-nurture those desires, then we can yeah. start to imagine and not settle for anything less. I think it's right extraordinarily powerful and a source of yeah. renewable energy. Well, and I and it makes me think too. So I um, briefly quoted James Baldwin in my second sermon, which I won't get perfect right now. Um, but it's something he said something to the effect of one of the reasons he thinks people hold on to their hate so tightly is that if they give up their hate, they'll be forced to deal with pain. And I think that is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you face the sort of reckoning of shifting back to the the knowledge and the truth that all these people on the receiving end of racial violence are as human as you are, that's actually a profoundly hard thing to, to swallow, especially if you've been part of the violence Um, And so I think having this, creating a broader sort of emotive experience is really important and powerful. And I'm reminded that actually last, I think it was last November, I did a sermon called Grief and Gratitude. And it was about this kind of idea that when we're dealing with these really difficult, encompassing feelings and really trying to wade through a lot of pain, that it's a good idea to help foster our own emotional resilience and things like gratitude don't deny the grief, but they give us the capacity to hold it better Mm -hmm. um, and to be more present in it. And so the things that we're talking about, like joy and pleasure and all these things, it's not a way of numbing and it's not a way out, um, but it, it adds to our resilience in seeing the pain in the world and doing what we can to change it. Yeah, I think there's a difference between avoidant pleasure seeking yes. and regenerative pleasure seeking. I think yes. they're, yes. they feel different. I think you can tell the difference when you're yes. engaging in right. them. Yes. Do you feel enlivened or do you not? <laughs> yep. <laughs> or do you feel numbed? I mean, do you feel more or less alive? That's the difference. That's do the you thing. feel hungover in some way later? Like yeah. there are a lot of good indicators of like, okay, so that was not true joy. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, because true joy is sort of an endlessly abundant thing that yeah. only creates more joy. So on a similar note, but not exactly the yep. same note. I think one of the things that you in particular called out as something to be undermined is measuring the health of the country by GDP. So this is a very specific manifestation of the underlying white supremacist principle that 
more yeah. is better and yeah um you know everything that goes into gross domestic product encompasses the total of what it means to be a healthy thriving society so this one manifestation of that particular principle i agree i think yeah. that um <laughs> The nature of quantitative analysis in that because it is a discipline is that it has a point of yep. view and every point yeah. of view is missing something because you can't yep. look from everywhere. So right. beginning this conversation with the fundamental understanding that quantitative analysis, especially the quantitative tools that we have at our disposal, which come from a social history, can yeah. never be the full picture, right? Right. Starting from the yeah. basis of an understanding of truth and knowledge has to include more than numbers. Yeah. That said, and so to be to be like really clear about language, we're talking qualitative meaning data. Um, quantitative meaning data. Yes. Quanti- See, this is it's good that we. <laughs> I just said it wrong, but yeah. So yeah. No so worries. nobody's confused at our like grad school talk. Yeah, we're talking yeah. about data. So data has an opinion, and it comes from somewhere. So I, my undergrad degree was in sociology and anthropology. And this is one of the things that they really drilled down on was this idea that no research can be neutral because it comes from humans with a social lens and a social context. And I was kind of baffled when I was in college because my peers who were like, quote unquote, hard science majors Mm -hmm. seemed to be getting this idea that their data was purely objective and it was maddening to me as if like the data collected in a laboratory is not collected by humans who came from somewhere and have a story and are and are setting up certain kinds of information gathering so yeah data is really helpful but it's not a whole story and no single data point is a whole story and gdp is certainly not a whole story yeah and i'm you know, I'm, I mean, my grad program is about social policy and data analytics. So it does yeah. a lot of connecting between. You're a pro. Well, okay. Well, I'm like on week four. <laughs> Let's not get ahead of ourselves here. You're <laughs> getting there. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, looking at the history of this too, the reason this, the field of statistics became a field is yeah. because eugenicists wanted to justify the subjugation Whoa. of black people because that's they're nuts and yeah. like of course yeah so there were these con there were these two uh realities that were in conflict one is yeah. increasing uh fetishizing of democracy and everyone is equal right all of these grand ideas that we're yeah. meant to believe in while at the at the, the gulf between that and reality, especially when you look at how people are racialized in society, that gulf right. was so wide that there needed to be a way to do some kind of repairing of this cognitive dissonance, this society level wow. cognitive dissonance. And out of that came some sort of attempts at scientific, quote unquote, justifications. And that's why the understanding of science as objective and without having a point of view, that idea in itself is rooted deeply and explicitly in white supremacy. It is there, that idea is there 
to protect white supremacy from criticism. So I'm like mic drop to you on that one. That's I didn't know that. Yeah, me either. Damn. And why didn't Damn. we know that? Because white supremacy right, hides its supposed to. tracks. <laughs> Pardon my language. <laughs> Whatever. You're the podcast editor. <laughs> yeah. But like, why don't we know that? Because white supremacy covers right. its tracks. That's why. Right. Right. And that's where just like sort of making it, tra- making it not transparent, right? Making it opaque so that we can see it. I think is a really important thing because once we know that yeah like geez and so but again this is what i'm can wrestling i tell with. an anecdote related oh please because yes. similarly so this whole the religious right and the um all of this like emotion and energy around abortion as an issue mm. um so abortion originally was supported by evangelicals because biblically it said that life begins with breath. Because if you read Genesis, you're not alive until the breath of God is in you. And so originally evangelicals were in support of abortion or at least neutral, like it wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the 1960s. And I'm going to get the guy's name wrong. Um, I think it was Jerry Falwell. Anyways, there, so were, there were these Christian universities and Christian schools that didn't want to have to integrate and wanted to still get tax cuts as educational institutions without integrating. And so to get the sort of voting power to try and maintain that, they literally had like an open phone line where they had people call in to talk about, to like suggest issues that would be galvanizing And they chose abortion and gay rights as the two things that would be galvanizing, but would point the the sort of camera away from this like racism issue and the desire to keep their schools white. And then they had this conference and flew all these evangelical pastors in together and trained them in how to convince their congregations that abortion was wrong and being gay was evil. And that's how this whole religious right political voting block got started. And it was really about money and black kids being allowed to go to school with white kids. Wow. Which is nuts. I did not know. But like, you don't know that, right? Like you don't, because it's trying to hide its tracks, right? Abortion as a religious issue originally was to hide the tracks of, of white supremacy and not wanting to integrate schools. Unbelievable mic drop (laughs) yeah like right like the more you know it's just wild i mean what is i need to look at like what our budget is for mics because like we're dropping them left and right that's all i'm trying to say um (laughs) you did get a new mic (laughs) i did yes i don't know if everyone can tell um if you're audio engineers um yeah which is definitely not what it's called so i'm giving myself away (laughs) whatever (laughs) your sound engineers you may be able to tell that i'm a little more or less compressed not that i know what that means okay um (sighs) i derailed us with with more anecdotes about white supremacy nonsense no so i think you derailed my derailment from my own point (laughs) okay great (laughs) let's just navigate back a little bit so 
the reason I brought up quantification in the first place, actually, I am, I mean, my undergrad major was mathematics. I am in Uh a data analytics program. I think there's a lot of value that can come from quantitative analysis of the world in context. Big asterisk when it is placed in context and supported by theory and other critical sources of wisdom that are not always validated by white supremacist culture. Um, And so you brought up GDP as a measure that does not is not indicative of things that we as Unitarians care about the most when it comes to the health of a society. I'm curious if you think there are some metrics that might start to get at answering questions of how is our country moving towards a kind of health that is really deep rejuvenative and that matters. Yeah. So obviously that's a complicated question because the simple answer is GDP, which is a bad answer. And so I think about if we sort of look at this in like an individual person's um, life, if you just look at their bank account, or even more specifically, just look at their stock profile, like, that's not going to tell you if their life is flourishing, and if like their spirit is fulfilled, and they're connected to their community. Um <laughs> And so I think this is the complicated question of what are all of the indicators that give you a much more holistic understanding of collective health and well-being, not only of people, but I would say also of the environment, Um, like the sort of how do we how do we know if the whole creation of all of the things and our our place as humans in the whole thing is flourishing and when I say it that way, like it's so obviously not just the stock market. But so I think about things like like the example that I gave when, when you and I were talking earlier is like the addiction crisis is a really good indicator that there's a big social fracture um, because we know that addiction is not something that you can get punished out of. And one of the few things that can have a sort of transformative effect on addiction is connection and community. That's sort Mm. of like one of the few things that we can point to as like, this is going to be a helpful thing. And so to me, really high addiction rates and especially mortality rates around drug use um, and incarceration rates and especially incarceration rates for black and brown people with drug crimes, like that's a really good indicator of a certain kind of problem that speaks to a kind of ill health in a system. And so I think it's, it's looking at all of those things and all of the data points like do we do we give parents you know parental leave when they have kids are like how many people are unhoused and like how big is the wealth gap like those kinds of things to me are much more powerful indicators of a regenerative regenerative and flourishing society than this one this one like stock market thing, yeah. um, which is so limited and it sort of convinces us that, or try is trying to convince us that things are fine when they're not. So I don't know. It's a, it's a good imaginative question um, talking about like, as, as we were saying, thinking about the things that help us imagine that more and different things are possible. Mm-hmm. So like, I invite everybody who's listening to think about that. Like, 
what would you what sort of indicators would you think about as things that would point towards societal and global health because we all have different roles in the system and it's good to know sort of what our what our part is and where we can we can move the dial yeah i was thinking about this the other day approaching social justice is really daunting if you don't yeah approach it from a certain mindset yeah and and we've talked about a lot of antidotes to that joy connection linking arms yeah. with other people who are doing the work with you from the same spiritual groundwork or from other values that matter to you. Yeah. Um, I think it's also important to see that there is so much work out there, but some yeah. of it is work that only you can do. Yes. And that is true of everybody. Everyone right. has work that is theirs to do. And standing next to everyone else who is working on figuring out what their work is to do, I mean, it's empowering and it's a building of community. I think that's the only way that I can look at it without getting bowled over by the magnitude. And so I would say, too, that's an act of faith. Yeah. Um, and so our, as Unitarian Universalists, our seventh principle is that is essentially that we believe in interdependence and mm-hmm. that we covenant to participate in our role in interdependence. And a lot of times the seventh principle gets read as only being the sort of ecology principle, like it's about the natural world, which is, of course, true, right? Like an- humans are animals in a, right, like a natural environment and a system but it's also calls us to live into the faith that none of us are the only people doing this. Mm-hmm. And our role is to live our fullest self in our greatest capacity and whatever that is um, with the faith that somebody else is doing their part that we can't do. Like, I am so grateful to you learning about data analyt- analytics and policy because like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> Well, neither yet. Um, and I remember, <laughs> well, you're you're working on it, right? Like you have the capacity yeah. to be able to do it. And I, I remember um, the sermon that I gave about trees last spring that was our first sort of not in-person sermon was one that I had written, I don't know, a year or, so, or I had written the sort of first iteration of it a year or so before. And I gave that sermon on a day when I was feeling really like down and out and sort of like, who knows if this matters And I found out months later that one of the people that was in the congregation is actually some kind of, what does she do? She does like nonprofit advising. And I had given this sermon about how flourishing is mutual mutual and about learning to listen right to the wisdom of trees and the natural environment. And it turns out that she was one of the speakers at the UN Climate Change Summit. And that what I had said had influenced her thinking, which like when she told me that and like straight up told these like mega nonprofit organizations like global nonprofits that they would have to work together in order to move the dial and in order to make change because flourishing is mutual. I was like, holy shit. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we never know. Rarely in life do we get that kind of loop back where we know that the thing that we showed up for 
and offered in our own capacity and in, with the sort of gifts and talents and expertise that we have, that we sort of see the domino effect where that does actually affect someone else who can do something that I couldn't do alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's it's powerful to remember those stories that remind us of how connected we are, yeah. um, to, re- to remind us and call us into living our own um, capacity fully. Yeah. And I think it's also, you know, someone who thinks about it quantitatively. Um, yeah. <laughs> Clearly, I'm the minister and you're the researcher. <laughs> I like this dynamic. <laughs> um, I mean, I think the work that we do is not the work that I do plus the work that you do, right? Yeah, no, right. It's not additive. It's multiplicative. Right. It's exponential. Right, right. And the work that you and she did is different than work that either of you could do by yourself and then add it together after the fact. So living deeply into all of your connections in the faith that what you, the way that you build them, the way that you nurture them matters. And it matters in ways that you're not going to get to see, but you're going to get to feel. And that's where it's this leap of faith. To say, like, I'm going to show up and live my whole truth and be my full self, not knowing all of the ripple effects. Like, RBG, there's no way that she could quantify in any way the impact she had on the world. Like, nobody Mm -hmm. can quantify that. Yeah. Because it is so profound. And, And I think, I mean, the, the Jewish phrase, may her memory be a blessing, is is not this sort of like, hold on to happy memories thing. It's really a call to be inspired by someone's life and the justice that they that they created in their living. So I, I call us all into that, especially, you know, when, when the world feels fraught. Um, and, you know, the president seems like an evil god in some ways. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that in the church state divide, but um like we 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 put we put these differently yeah it's it's like we don't we don't we are people who believe in a democratic process because we believe in this sort of participation of all parts we do not worship kings and i think that's a an important thing to remember yeah (sighs) wow this is a wild ride this is, yeah. I mean, how's I your spirit? My spirit is. Uh, what's there's a specific <laughs> word that I'm trying to think of. So, I I wish I could remember who it was. There was someone. It was just like on Twitter. Someone yeah. mentioned a quote that said, "The ocean is not at peace; it is in harmony." Oh, and that is a goal. And that's amazing. That's how I'm starting to feel, really. Yeah. That's really yeah. how I'm starting to feel because what we're working for is like a society is made up of people, groups of people, individuals yeah. who are unruly, who are. <laughs> 
gonna just humans like, are wild who are wild. like we're definitely we're definitely humans are definitely animals and <laughs> like the goal is not to have no conflict the goal is not yeah. to have nirvana where everyone's walking around like step free wives with smiles on their face the goal is no, that not... sounds terrifying i know there's a reason it's a horror movie the goal yeah. is for me, that is a much more compelling understanding of what a yeah. world can realistically look like that we can live towards right. a world, right. not just not at a simple peace, but at a harmony. And yeah. I think that is how my spirit is feeling right now. It's feeling Good. like harmony is possible. I love that. Yeah. I want to, this is maybe randomly placed, um, but it reminds me of another thing. I've been seeing a lot of people, especially with all the um, photos of the wildfires in California Mm. and people talking about sort of this time as being the apocalypse, which like as a minister, I hope I can add some helpful context to that word um, because Mm. that is a word that used to like send shivers down my spine, like, right, like chill your blood in your veins. And in actuality the word apocalypse in the original biblical greek translates more closely to revelation and uncovering and so an apocalypse is actually a moment when the things that have been hidden become visible and in that it's a moment when we can change things and so this idea of like an apocalypse is the end of the world like there's sort of the scary interpretation of that but there's also what i would call more of a faithful interpretation of that that says this is a moment when so much is being uncovered and in that we can change it and maybe the world that has been doing so much harm to so many people maybe that way of being can end now and we can do something differently now and so to me that speaks to that kind of shift into this like maybe harmony is possible um, and maybe this moment in all of its chaos is helping us see the things that need to change and giving us the actual sincere motivation to do so. Mic so. drop number three. <laughs> <laughs> We're on fire. Like, what's our next podcast going to be about? I don't know. I think we, maybe we need to take summer breaks more often. We're just like coming <laughs> hot. <laughs> yeah, there you go, guys. <laughs> We're clearly glad to be back. Yes. Um, well, thank you so much for talking to me about this. I feel yeah, ditto. better at the end of this conversation than I did at the beginning of it. Me too. Me too. And I hope, I mean, I can say I feel more joyful and more, I guess, enlivened having this conversation with you. And I, I hope all our people listening are sort of drawn into that um, and drawn into to living their own full capacity and remembering that despair is not the only option for feeling. Yeah, to hope and to agency and to imaginative thinking. Amen. May it be so. (laughs) See you next time. (laughs) All right. Have a great month. We'll talk to you next month, everybody. Thanks for listening. For more information about what's happening at UUCSW or for ways to get involved, visit us online at uucsw.org or visit us in person. All are welcome.